Wright has advertised, this morning we are beginning a new sermon series that I've entitled Clothed in Christ, and it's going to take us all the way through the summer. And to begin the series, we're going to begin in the beginning. If you've got your Bibles with you then today, I invite you to open up to the book of Genesis, particularly we'll uh, begin reading at the end of Genesis chapter 2. Uh, if you didn't bring your own Bibles, the passage is printed in your bulletins or on that blue Bible. Unsurprisingly, you can find Genesis 2 on page 2. Uh, so you can turn and open that and follow along in that Bible if you would like to with this familiar portion of the Word of God. And sometimes familiarity makes us not listen to something as carefully. So let me just give you something to focus on. Uh, with the title and with the theme that we're looking at today of this text, perhaps it would be good to pay particular attention to clothing, to the absence of clothing, to inadequate clothing, and then to the provision thereof that we find in uh, this passage this morning. So this is the Word of God. I'm going to begin reading in verse 24 of chapter 2 which of course is right after the creation of Eve and uh, Eve having been brought to Adam. And then I'll let you know, I'm going to end on a little bit free and then skip a little bit. This is the word of God. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then in verses 14 through 19, we have the curses that are met out against 
uh, the, the serpent and then Eve and Adam. And I'm going to pick it up with just two verses, 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Clothed by God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand your word. We do not wish to go astray, and we pray that you would protect us from it. We pray that you would help us to understand this word properly. Spirit of God, you who inspired the authors, you who gave to them your very words to write, would you illumine us today so that we can understand these things and apply them rightly in our day, in our age, in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, according to my exhaustive and extensive research, it was Joan Rivers who first popped the question on the red carpet in the mid-90s. You know what the question is that she popped on the red carpet? It became kind of the question that you would ask on the red carpet for a long time. Who are you wearing? And that would give the opportunity, right? If you're the star who had just come and you meet Joan Rivers there on the red carpet, you would be able to say, well, I'm wearing such and such a designer. And you'd have the opportunity then to name drop the designer and to display the skill of the designer to display, flaunt your beauty in the particular ensemble, the dress, whatever the tuxedo uh, that you were wearing for the evening. And all of that worked well to up the cachet of being chic and of who your designer was and perhaps who made your jewelry as well and who allowed you to be there and look so nice that particular evening. Now, apparently, and I don't follow these things too closely, but I did do extensive research on this, apparently because of concerns about the industry, it is currently not in vogue to ask that question, to be specific about uh, the question of who are you wearing. That notwithstanding, we're going to borrow it today. We're going to borrow that question. So Adam and Eve are before us. Adam and Eve, who are you wearing? God. I'm wearing God. God made these for us. God clothed us in these outfits. For the next few months, we're going to consider a biblical theology of clothing. How is it used throughout scripture? Now, even with taking a number of weeks to consider this, we won't by any means exhaust all of the scriptures that there are to be considered on this topic. But from nakedness to white robes, from sackcloth to wedding gowns, from fig leaves to animal skins, from swaddling cloths to garments that are bright and almost white as light, to a robe with a golden sash around it that has been dipped in blood, 
to the fine linen in which the armies of heaven are arrayed, white and pure. We're going to be talking and looking about what the Bible has to say about clothing. The Bible is full of observations, of instructions, of reflections upon clothing. Now, some of them are very practical. They might be warnings about things that are inappropriate to wear. They might be encouragements about things that are good to wear or are good to do with clothes. They might be for us guidelines that are provided and, and descriptions of what is beautiful. So there are some very just practical things that the Bible says about clothing itself, but in addition to that, or perhaps even more significantly than that, clothing is a pervasive symbol and metaphor and analogy that is used throughout Scripture. Now, our culture, particularly our culture, tries to deny the idea that clothing communicates. We would like to say, well, it doesn't matter what we wear on the outside. Clothing doesn't say anything about anything or about me in and of myself, but no matter how much we try to deny that, the reality is that clothing speaks. Clothing is like words, and like words, clothing communicates realities. Now, clothing shouldn't have the final word, but to try to deny that your clothing is saying something is impossible. All cultures, it communicates in all cultures, it communicates in all times. It communicates from the very beginning pages of Scripture to the very end of Scripture. Clothing communicates various realities. So first of all, as we go into this, a clarification. My intention in this series is not to change the way that anyone dresses in the church. Okay? So I want you to hear that loud and clear. Uh, I, I have not got any kind of a commission from the session that says people are really dressing blank. You really need to preach this and you need to, to fix the way people are dressing. I am not concerned about the way any of you in particular are dressing. So whatever else you might hear from me, you're not hearing that uh, from me in this particular series. Now, I will say that in one of the sermons, as I've uh, charted it out, in one of the sermons in August, I am going to talk about some of the practical things that the Bible has to say about clothing, and we'll see, and we can process through uh, the principles and how that applies uh, to us, or at least you be able to process through them as I set them out before us. But that is not my main focus this morning. My intent is to explore the beauty of this biblical idea of being clothed in Christ. Galatians 3.27 says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And that's clothing imagery that's there. You've put on Christ in, or we've put on Christ in our baptism. And that is the rich symbol and the rich reality that we'll explore from a variety of angles Asking ourselves, if you will, one very basic question. If, if, if I've put on Christ, how do I grow into this? 
How do I grow into be a person who is donned, who is decked with Christ himself? And what does that mean in our lives? So we begin today with being clothed by God. And we begin as you would expect us to begin. We begin naked. That is to say, we begin our story unclothed, literally unclothed, no clothing on humanity. That is how Adam and Eve started, being immediately created by God. They were created by God without any clothes on. But it's also, of course, how we came into the world. We came into the world naked and Various places in scripture, in Job and in Ecclesiastes in particular, make that point to say that we came into this world through our mother's womb naked. Now they take it further and to say that's how we will go out of the world as well. But this is affirmed and, and this reality, right, the simple reality that Adam and Eve and we come into the world naked becomes very quickly, even in Genesis, but then throughout scripture as well, a metaphor, a way to talk about things of the faith. In fact, in Ezekiel 16, which is a passage that we'll look at in a little bit more depth uh, in a few weeks, God describes Israel and his calling and his bringing out, his redeeming of the people of Israel. And he says that when I found you, you were naked and bare. That's the way he describes them. You were naked and bare, and I, that is God speaking here, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I clothed you, says God. Now, obviously, for Adam and Eve, this is quite literal, what is taking place here as well. For Israel, when we're talking about it here, we're not talking about literal, we're talking about the symbolism that is involved in this, the metaphor of what God is doing on behalf of his people. But of course, now back to the garden itself, they were naked, and they were in those wonderful words that close chapter 2, they were naked and they were not ashamed about it. There was nothing to be ashamed of. There was nothing to hide. There was nothing to conceal about it. There was nothing that you needed to cover up because you felt bad about it for whatever reason you might feel bad. But of course, we continue the story quickly into chapter 3 and we see how that changes. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the garden as well as the serpent, Satan. And he says to Eve that when you eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you won't in fact die, but what will happen to you in that moment is that your eyes will be opened. Your eyes will be opened at that moment. And even here, we recognize that we're speaking in symbols, in metaphor, at least Satan is speaking in symbols and metaphor here. It's not that Adam and Eve were blind up to this point. But he says, your eyes are going to be opened when you do that. And indeed, when they eat of the tree, we read in verse 7 that that's exactly what happened. Okay, What Satan said would happen, your eyes will be opened, is exactly what happened when they ate of the tree. Their eyes were 
opened. They received knowledge. And what they see and what they understand at that point when their eyes are open, the very first thing that we read, we don't read that they looked at a tree and they saw, oh, well, the trees were great or something like that. They perceive, they see that they are naked. They see that they are unclothed. And now, of course, being naked has become something negative. It has become something that is shameful. And we can see that in the responses that Adam gives to God when God is seeking them out amongst the trees of the garden. And Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked. Discovery didn't come up with the idea of naked and afraid. Okay, they borrowed it right from Genesis. Naked and afraid. I was afraid of you. And so I hid myself. Now, nakedness is connected to fear, to hiding, to shame, and ultimately to guilt. Ultimately to guilt. You've disobeyed God. You are, in fact, guilty before God. You are trying to hide. You are trying to conceal what you have done because you are guilty. So with this ill-gained knowledge of self, let me make a pause there for a moment. Ill-gained, not because the knowledge of good and evil is a bad thing. Now let's be clear about this here for a moment. The knowledge of good and evil is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. In fact, throughout Scripture, it is a mark of wisdom. Solomon is praised by God. Why? Because he asked for the ability to discern between good and evil. But he asked appropriately for it. With this ill-gained self-knowledge, it is ill-gained because of how they took it. They took it on their terms. They took it in disobedience to what God had said. Now they try to cover themselves, to clothe themselves. And what we have set before us here in this passage are, of course, the first handmade clothes. The first effort at human beings taking clothing and making clothing and covering themselves. Now, let's be clear also about something. Uh, handmade clothes are something that we generally prize. We generally like handmade clothes. I have my Aunt Glow who throughout the early years of my life knitted me a sweater, uh, and I got a sweater from Aunt Glow every Christmas, uh, and it was great. I love to have handmade clothes. Lauren and many of you make clothes for your children. It's wonderful to have handmade clothes, and this is not only personal, but it's also biblical, right? The woman of virtue in Proverbs chapter 31 is praised for the fact that with her hands, she makes clothing for her household. She provides for her household. And so, handmade clothing is not always bad, but of course, in Genesis chapter 3, a different symbolism exists here. Namely, that the work of human hands cannot fix the problem that human hands created. That's the symbolism that is, work, that is at work here. Your hands reached out and took that fruit and partook of it. Your hands cannot be the thing that fixes it. Why? Because your hands are dirty. Your hands are filthy. 
you can't solve this problem. They need clothing that is not made by human hands. That's a theme that will be developed in little other places in the scripture with altars and other things. Not made by human hands, as one of our hymns says. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Now let's be clear, the hands of humanity, of Adam and Eve, and all who have come forth from them, are going to be busy. The hands are going to be busy working the ground that God has provided. The hands are going to be busy taking care of children and eating and doing all of the things that you do with your hands, but the unclean hands of man cannot finally cleanse the body or the soul of guilt. And so then we read in verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God has done what we could not. God has provided covering for us, body and soul. Now, we're familiar with the flow of what I just laid out for us, how we move through uh, nakedness to fig leaves to God-made clothes. All of us have heard that before. And I think that when most of us think about that and we think of the symbolism that is attached to it, the reality, because God is making the clothes for them, and then the meaning that is attached to that, we tend to think of it in two proper categories. In the first place, when we think of God having provided this clothing for them, I think we perceive it to be a redemptive act of God. God has perceived their shamefulness. God has seen that there is nothing that Adam and Eve can do to appropriately cover themselves, to atone for themselves. And so what he does is he acts on their behalf. The animals are killed, and whatever means the animals were killed, and the skins are provided, the clothing is provided, and it is put on them by God. Now, as you are covered, or as they at least were covered in animal skins, it, it's serving two functions. Calvin notes that when they would have looked at one another in these animal skins, what they would have been reminded of is their vileness. They would have seen what it takes and what they now look like in these animal skins. But it also, at the same time that it shows them their vileness, also gives them the hope that there is covering from the Lord, that there is provision from the Lord that has been given to us. So I think most of us think of this covering, this clothing by God as redemptive, and that's completely appropriate. It leads us all the way up to Christ. There's a second way that I think we think about this story as well, from naked to fig leaves to God-provided clothing, and that is that it's an example for us of God's providential care. For all of the redemptive implications that are contained in this, God's gifts of clothing is really an expression of his mercy. As various writers put it, it's an expression of his kindness, of his tender care for people. We need warmth and protection. 
That's what clothes provide for us, and that is a provision for God. This is reflected in the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, right? But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? This is a, this is a response to our need. God mercifully takes care of us by providing for us what we need. And very basically speaking, without any symbolism, we need clothing. So these two aspects are the way that we think about it. We think about it redemptively and we think about it providentially in terms of God's care for us. Yea and amen and absolutely. But let me add one more thing to it. And it's one more thing that may have escaped your attention as I confess it has escaped my attention as well in looking at this text. And I'm very thankful for those who have helped me uh, to see it. Indeed, clothing in the Bible is provided by God, but it is not only the resolution of a problem, whether that problem be sin and shamefulness and guilt that exists, or whether that problem be simply in the elements, you need to have some clothing. It is not only the resolution of a problem. Clothing in the Bible is one other thing as well, and it is this. It is honorific. Honorific. It is a means of conveying honor and communicating honor to a person as well. So when clothing is made, for example, for the high priest in Exodus chapter 28, the clothing is made and it is to be made for glory and beauty. For glory and beauty. Now that word beauty can also be translated honor. Okay, so however you'd like to think of it, for glory and for beauty slash honor. Think for a moment, the clothing of the high priest, Moses is going to put the robe on the high priest, that's his role, to put the high priest in this clothing. Is the clothing redemptive? Well, of course, the clothing of the, the high priest is a redemptive clothing, communicating the value, the necessity of what is taking place and what the priest is about to do. Does it help him in his work? Well, yes, it's completely attached to the work that he has to do, this work of offering on behalf of the people of God, of interceding on behalf of the people of God. But when you note that it is made for beauty and for glory and for honor, you see that there's something else at work. That's something else. That's not just the redemptive aspect of it. That's not just that this is good for work. This is good clothing for the work that I do. It's a statement of honor. Honor of the one who is wearing it and honor of the one before whom it is being worn. When Jacob wants to communicate love to his son Joseph, he perhaps unwisely, what does he do? He gives to him a coat of many colors, right? That's, and, and his brothers are incensed. Why? Because of the honor that is being shown to this son of the old age. Why him? Why him? Why does he get all that love and all that honor? The clothing communicates it. It's designed to communicate it. Hannah makes a little robe to put on 
Samuel each year. She takes it up, and Samuel ministers there in a linen ephod in no doubt anticipation of what's going to take place in that young boy's life. Joseph and Daniel and Mordecai, they're all clothed by the respective regents of the empires in which they find themselves. They are all clothed to mark their position. Clothes are put on them. They're brought before the people. Look at what they are wearing. Their robes, their cloaks have royal significance. Take note of this and honor them appropriately. And the clothes mark that. The clothes didn't make that. The clothes mark it. And they make it aware so that everybody can see what is taking place. The prodigal returns. And he doesn't just get any old robe. He gets the best robe put on him. The martyrs who are pictured in heaven are not naked, right? They're clothed in white robes dripped in the most precious element in the universe, the blood of Christ. They're clothed, they're honored. Adam and Eve were naked in the garden. And in order to avoid any misunderstanding, the Bible, Moses, immediately tells us that they were naked, but it was not shameful. Don't misunderstand that reality. There's no shame in their being naked. It was not shameful, but it was not completed. It was not finished. That is the way they started. It would not be the way that they ended. The Garden of Eden is not heaven. It is not the new heavens and the new earth. It is the beginning and it is not the end. And in the Garden of Eden, a test was set up. Death or the potentiality of death was in the Garden of Eden. And just for a moment, to understand the beginning by looking at the end of the story, would heaven be heaven to you if in the midst of heaven there was a tree that might bring you death if you ate from it? Probably not. That would be awfully scary. Eden isn't heaven. It isn't finished. It's completed in terms of creation, not in terms of the test that has been set up to take place there for humanity. We're placed in the garden, and as we said with respect to Samuel, what the king should have done, King Adam, is he should have crushed the head of that serpent immediately in the garden. That's what should have taken place there. Nakedness is the beginning, it is not the end. When we look at pictures of heaven, when it's described for us, when the saints are described, when Christ is described in heaven, they are not naked. They are not unclothed in heaven. They are investments. They're vested. They are clothed. And I'm indebted to two theologians in particular, uh, William Wilder and Greg Beale, for helping me to see this and understand this and pointing this out. 
we need to talk about the word investiture. You know that word investiture? It's not a word we use very much. Investiture. It's defined as the act of formally investing a person with honors or rank. It's from the Latin to dress in a robe. Think of, for example, a Supreme Court justice in the U.S. There's a, a ceremony of investiture in which that robe is put upon them. Uh, a variety of you uh, have graduated or are graduating uh, sometime here within the next week or two uh, or in the past week or two. And as a mark of that, there was an element of clothing that was involved. A robe was put on you. And perhaps if you did well, you received a couple of cords uh, as well, perhaps cords from uh, being in honors or receiving uh, the Latin honors that were there, the various uh, cum laudes or uh, summas or, or uh, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, summa, uh, what am I missing? What is it? Magnum, thank you, sorry. Um, blank for a moment there. Or a hooding ceremony, right? Uh, if you get your doctorate, your PhD, you have a hooding ceremony where that's part of it. It is an investiture, investing a person with rank. When the prodigal returns home in rags and says to his father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What does the father say immediately? Wait, 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 wait. We're stopping that attitude right now. We're ending that right now. You guys, go get the best robe. Go get the best robe. Go get the ring. Go get the sandals right now. Why? Why? Because you need to know, my son, and everybody around you needs to know this. You are my son. You are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. Get the robe and put it on you. Nakedness before the fall was not shameful. But as any ancient reader would have immediately seen, nakedness for the king and queen of creation begs investiture. That's what has to happen next. Pass the test, kill, crush the head of the serpent, and investiture. It begs royal honor being communicated to them, to quote William Wilder. And so when God Almighty makes clothes for Adam and Eve of animal skins, is it redemptive? Absolutely, yes. Is it a tender mercy of God's providential care? Yes, absolutely. And it is a declaration. It is a declaration that says, you are my royal children. These garments are not what they would have been, nor what they will be. They're not the fine white linen garments of heaven. They're animal skins. But my hands will do what your hands did not and cannot. 
I will redeem you, I will care for you, and I will exalt you, and I will honor you, because you are my children. Receive these garments from me. I will clothe you, and I will do it through my son, ultimately, who will be stripped for you so that you can be clothed in him. That's the way this story goes. And so the command, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, for we must be clothed by God. Who are you wearing? Who are you wearing? Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your son. Teach us what it means to be clothed in him, to be delightful and honored by you. We ask this in his name. Amen.